0: You're listening to High Temperature Times, a high temperature podcast that burns through a whole slew of great refractory topics. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I am an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. I think it's been a full year now since we really knuckled down and talked about refractory consuming applications. And let's be real, it's high time we got back to them because there are a lot of them out there. This month we'll be tackling perhaps one of the broadest applications out there, incineration. And to do that, we're gonna to need to bring in another application specialist, Chris Hirsch, to lay out exactly what that means. But before we get to that, let's peer into the technical marketing inbox. This month's question comes from Jeremy S Ask, asking, I saw some information from you guys on reactivity with refractories. Can you tell me a little more about refractories and their pH? So yeah, maybe a bit steep for a technical marketing question, but an apt one. Before I got into the refractory industry, pH was only for chem class and pool water. But yeah, all things have a pH, and it's just a really good indicator of how reactive a certain material will be with another. High school chemistry told me that when I take an acid and mix it with a base, some juju happens and we get a reaction. So simply put, we want to avoid these reactions by mixing acids with acids, or bases with bases, or by sticking to neutral materials that don't react with either. On the sliding scale of pH, we have what we call acidic materials like silica. These materials would be very reactive in say an alkaline lime kiln, but less so in an acidic iron foundry. Aluminosilicate materials like fire clay still have that acidic silica, but are slightly higher in pH since alumina is a neutral pH material. Chromium materials are also neutral, which is great because they won't react with anything. Um, But on the basic side, we have materials like magnesia and calcia. So yeah, there's your surface level introduction to all things have a PH. And if you'd like to learn more about this or what it means, definitely reach out to us. Uh, thank you though, Jeremy, for the question. Right then, we've got a fair bit of ground to cover, so let's dig into it. Welcome, Chris.
1: Hey, Griffin, glad to be here. Yeah,
0: so c- care to take a minute to introduce yourself and tell us what your role is with the uh, application technology group?
1: Uh, sure, well, I, I got my undergrad at Penn State in, uh chemical engineering, and I recently got my MBA from University of Illinois. Um, and basically, I started at Harbison uh, at the Pittsburgh headquarters right out of school. and I've been here ever since, like uh, eight years now. Um, and, and currently, I handle marketing and technical support for incineration, of course, uh, but also pulp and paper, cal signing, and carbon black.
0: So incineration is... I don't know, kind of a fancy way of just saying we burn stuff without really saying much else in that in that title. But if we were to zoom in a little more, what kind of applications are we really looking at?
1: I guess so, but just saying we burn stuff is a bit disingenuous. There's actually a ton of engineering and technology that goes into making the destruction of waste you know really as safe and as efficient as possible. Uh, the unfortunate fact is that humans make tons of waste, you know, in both our industrial processes and and at home. So incineration is, is all about how to manage those waste streams and break them down into less harmful components. And in some cases, or in most cases, just to reduce their volume too. In that way, I guess incineration is, is pretty different from our other refractory applications where our customers are creating a product like steel or glass or cement, uh, or chemicals in our, our industries. And I, I'd say it's just as critical of an industry though. Um, pretty important process. To your question about the applications, we lump a lot of different incineration processes and furnaces together. Some of them include cremation, uh, thermal oxidizers, hazardous waste rotary incinerators, waste energy boilers, multi-color furnaces, um, and the list kind of goes on, but it's pretty exhaustive. While their functions can be wildly different, the refractory fundamentals are really similar at the end of the day so i'm guessing you'll ask me later more about the the refractory part of it so i won't go into that now
0: thinking more about the varying applications i'm sure there's a whole lot of nasty that the refractory has to deal with can you give us some examples here across the grouping that you mentioned
1: well i can try but we might need to schedule another call for all the details so i can go through a couple bullet points of each i guess so like starting with cremators which we can in a way, relate to. Uh, They have their own challenges, but they're generally low temperature, at least in the refractory world, you know, like below 2,000 degrees. And they're all about alkali resistance, you know, increasing the insulating ability of the lining, so highly insulated, and also cost effectiveness. So that's cremators. But interestingly, like I mentioned, a, a hazardous waste rotary kiln, it actually operates at a pretty similar temperature like around 2,000 degrees or even less, but they use brick that are like eight times more expensive and that's because of the, the fee that's going into the incinerator creates aggressive slag reactions with the brick so we need special chromic oxide brick to resist that. Um, so kind of an example of you know similar conditions but wildly different refractory. And as a third example, you know like thermal oxidizers are interesting because there's there's so much variety in size shape, you know, orientation, process conditions, you know, end user customers—they're in all sorts of industrial processes. There's thermal oxidizers, so those are really like an it depends application where it really requires an understanding of the customer's expectations and process variables in order to, you know, as you said, you know, deal with the nasties and understand what those are and how to deal with them.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, in incineration—you're dealing with. A wide range of temperatures, a wide range of, we'll call them feedstocks here, um, chemical attack from, from different materials. So that would mean that you have to have a whole army of refractory technology available to withstand all these bad actors. So what kind of products are we talking about?
1: Another long discussion potentially, but <laughs> I, um, I think you've seen my incineration 101 presentation where I have a a silly slide with like a hundred products on it and size eight font. And I say silly cause it you're not actually supposed to use that and make decisions with it. It's a bad joke, but it's the truth because like I said, these applications, there's it's wildly different products, um, depending on the, the process. So you need that, that large portfolio of different chemistry types and installation types and brick and castable and all these different uh, options to solve problems. And, and use and make up the right lining. So um, I've updated that presentation, and now the follow up slide is actually useful because it it outlines my my own methodology for selecting refractory in you know in incineration. But you could apply it to really any application. So it's a four step framework that it starts first with the, the thermal factors such as simply the operating temperature and or, you know, the shell temperature requirements of that unit. And then you consider the physical and the chemical bad actors, like we were just hinting at in the, you know, the last question. And then after you kind of figure that those two parts out, you think about the installation side. Uh, like if the geometry is really complex, maybe you, you cannot use brick. I mean, you should lean towards a castable or things like that. And then finally, it's like this miscellaneous bucket which um, could include things like the total project cost, uh, the lead time of the project, or the reline and dryout considerations and things like that. The idea is you work your way th- through that until you get to the best lining for the given conditions. And uh, often it takes a iteration or two because, uh, like for example, like a thermal oxidizer, you, it might look benign at first. Like I said, maybe it's only 2,000 degrees. As I said, too, that's pretty cold for a refractory, so I'm not worried about 2000 degrees and there's maybe no particulate or thermal shock. It's just all pretty normal. But as you keep reading through a, you know, RFQ or you're having a conversation, it turns out there's a significant flooring component to the waste stream. So maybe you're initially thinking like using a fire clay brick, like Clipper DP. Now you have to switch to a, a very high alumina, high quality, no silica brick, like Toughline 95 DM which is like seven times the cost of Clipper. So just that maybe one light item buried somewhere in that RFQ can change the whole thing and makes you go back to the beginning of that framework to really understand what you need in order to accomplish you know an effective lining. So all that to say, basically, I, I can't give you a list or a top 10 of products because it, there's too many to count. It really depends.
0: All right, so a pretty light background, but I think we've got an idea of what we call incineration. One of the things that I've been reading more and more about in my own applications is how government regulations can cause dramatic shifts in the industry. I'm sure that you have some similar changes of wind with emissions regulations yourself.
1: Well, yes, yes and no. Basically, you know, I know regulations are integral to the incineration industry and that's progress, but I, I wish I was more well-versed than I am. You know, I attend conferences and I try to glean what I can about you know the regulations side of the business, uh, but it's pretty complicated. I wouldn't really want to misspeak here, but I do know for one uh, that a hot topic right now is the handling and destruction of PFOS, uh, which is a highly pervasive pollutant. And in fact, I'll be presenting a talk titled "The Refractory Considerations for Fluorine Applications." at the upcoming IT3HWC conference in West Palm Beach early May, May 5th. So, shameless plug, but yeah, it's a good conference to attend if if people are interested in that topic. And like I said, I'll be there. We'll be talking about refractory during part of that panel.
0: And I'm sure that a lot of that need for regulation stems from the sheer diversity of things being incinerated. Sure, for things like scrap wood burners or even cremation units, it's pretty constant on the day-to-day business, but the things that they're putting through these hazardous waste incinerators must vary on the regular. Does this feedstock variability lead to challenges with the refractory?
1: Oh, it definitely does, and that's when things get fun, uh, for me at least. This is kind of when I, when I do presentations on incineration, I use a lot of case studies because to me they're an interesting way to get a point across, and it's real life, of course. So an interesting one that just came up that I can tell you about was in a hazardous waste and rotary incinerator. What was happening is the first few rings of chrome brick in that kiln were cracking and spalling and only lasting a few months instead of like a year to the typical reline schedule. So we went and did an inspection and noticed that there were you know, multiple waste injection lances right around the area in question, which Obviously, it would make you suspicious of what's going on there. So, it turns out the customer was burning a new type of waste, which was highly viscous. And what would happen is it would plug the nozzles instead of atomizing, and then it would drip, you know, directly onto the brick below it. And of course, it's a rotary kiln, so it's rotating and always exposing, you know, new brick to that that section where the the drippings happening. You know, that's going to cause thermal shock damage, um, you know, to these very high dense Brick that you know aren't are great at resisting that. So long story short, we changed out those brick to a really thermal shock resistant version. Again, tough line 95 DM that keeps coming up for through a workhorse. No, no purposeful reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that change made all the difference though. They inspected the lining a few months after installation and said the brick looked like the day they were installed. You could see the the joints and the mortar and it was perfect. So. I mean, personally, I love getting that feedback from customers. I think it's, you know, it's fun to solve problems and be the solution provider at the end of the day, and, and get that feedback. And especially, it's interesting incineration because usually it happens very quickly. You know, it's a short time frames for these these problems to hopefully be resolved.
0: Yeah, with case studies like these, you you must keep the analytical team really busy with the post mortem analyses. You know, some people might think that that HWI doing these postmortems is really just a way of covering our own rears and saying we did nothing wrong. But I, I'm sure like like that one there, you have lots of examples of how those resulting reports have led to, you know, optimized product selection, performance improvements, those kind of things. Are there any, any others that you can share that that utilize that, that pathway to, you know, industry progression?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I certainly keep that team busy, probably more so than anyone else in our marketing groups. Um, and actually, the last example with that incinerator, we did not use you know postmortem analysis. It was all kind of you know using your eyes and ears and seeing in the application and making an educated guess. But a lot of times, it's hard to make that guess. You're not sure of the chemistries, and you don't always have an opportunity to do an inspection and things like that. In my experience, there's you know very little motivation for cover up, you know if you will, of refractory problems. Uh, really what I see is that operators and customers in this industry know that what they do has a profound impact on the refractory life. And my customers are are trustworthy enough to, you know, not lie about what they're doing because that's not going to improve our process of solving a problem at all. As I showed in that last example, you, you really need some trust and coordination to understand the underlying issue and solve it. So at the end of the day, we're just trying to solve a problem and move on and, um, you know, there's a couple ways to do that, and post-mortem reports are a good way. To your question, uh, yeah, I just did one for um, a customer that it was pretty interesting. They operate a a couple types of incinerators: A multi-hearth furnace and a thermal oxidizer, and off of that is a cooling tower to cool those waste gases. So this was a new project, actually, about five years ago, a brand new you know, brown-fueled plant. But since then, they've had some localized you know, refractory problems. So we knew when specifying the original lining that there would be you know, significant acid concentrations throughout the system. Uh, so you know we knew enough to choose you know brick and castimals to suit those conditions, which would mean the whole lining basically needs to be cement-free. What I found interesting in the chemical analysis of these samples that we took is that we did measure acids in the refractory. However, that really is not too worrisome in and of itself because you know those acids have to go somewhere so another section of the report goes in detail the the phase analysis of the minerals and that's where you get to see what those bad actors that you identified exist like what they're actually doing you know what they're reacting with and in this case it showed you know they were hardly reacting at all with the refractory they were just kind of existing there right to me that's That's as important as identifying what that bad actor is because, you know, you could go down the road of chasing acid resistance, whereas, you know, now we know that's not a problem. So we look at other potential problems. Um, So in this case, you know, there's alkali that was identified and higher-than-expected slag and some thermal shock issues. You know, using that report, it lets you see more than you can see with your naked eye, and then you can avoid going down that wrong road. Uh, which you know would waste time and money, and um, you know won't help you solve the problem. So using that post-mortem report is is really like your map to to solving that problem.
0: So on a different note, I think the the entire world's undergoing a period of high demand right now. You know, supply constraints plus the pent-up demand means that everyone is running ragged trying to get the product out the door. Is this the same with the incineration industry? Are they being pushed to burn faster, and what happens to the refractory in these instances?
1: Yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, all our markets right now are experiencing really high demand. Regarding incineration, I was, you know, speaking with a hazardous waste incinerator uh, customer recently who had a interesting take I hadn't heard before. Essentially, the industry stuttered a bit because of COVID, which we all know. The issue that arises, though is when these complex chemical processes are stopped and started again you produce you know off spec product for some amount of time until you know the process is fully operational and at steady state so those materials you know generally require incineration and you know worse yet uh, so the customers building up these materials but they have strict limits you know permits for how much hazardous waste they can have on their site so they're generating waste they need to move it off premises so you have that juggling act of the incineration companies um, taking it and the producers producing it and they need to get rid of it before they can make more but on the other side the incinerators have their own permits for what they can you know burn and and work through and also just limits in general of their own you know equipment and production capacity at the end of the day my incineration customers are, are certainly pressured to increase their own capacity, but they're limited in the short term with their existing equipment. Uh, so, you know, anything they do to push more, you know, increase temperature, or try mixing different chemicals or waste that they didn't before, you know, can have undesirable side effects and, you know, almost always a negative effect on, you know, total refractory life. So kind of a combination of a bunch of different factors that, yeah, I would say in general are um you know driving higher consumption of refractory in this industry.
0: All right, last question. Given the aforementioned diversity in the industry, how does HWI push the envelope? I mean, it's easier in call it more standardized applications like steel where the need is more unanimous across a wider customer gap, but it seems like nothing's constant in the incineration field, like you know, given what you were saying about how the thermal oxidizers vary any new development, you'd really only be catering to a single customer. So what does improvement look
1: like? Well, it's an interesting question. For one, you know, HWI as a company has limited resources, you know, for new product development, but that's just like every other company in existence, of course. And we also have many different markets to serve. So we have this internal competition, I guess, of getting our own project sponsored. You know, as you said, incineration is so diverse that a single product, you know, may only have a limited market reach. So what I've done over the years though is essentially tag on to what other markets are proposing and developing. So for example, that cement-free castable lining I mentioned before, the brand name for that lining is called CS Tech 60. And it was actually a project that originated from the cement and lime markets, but you know, it turns out it works great for incinerators with acids too. So I didn't specifically come up with that product or exactly promote it, but I, you know, kind of tagged on to that effort and been really successful. And another example, kind of similar, it was in the pulp and paper market, which I also manage, you know, we found that a high lumina spinel containing product that was developed years ago for steel ladles works great in black liquor recovery boilers. And again, that's not a case of we develop something new, we just kind of repackage it for a different market, You know, it's the same product, um, we just found a new use for it. So sometimes you don't really know until you, know, you try. You know, so at a high level, I think, you know, being at a large company that serves many industries, it has an advantage if you know how to leverage it. So I do wish at the end of the day, I could get a you know, whole bespoke product catalog for all my applications, but that's not really realistic. But that said, we, we have done and will continue to develop product line extensions, and new products for incineration. So one example is a current product in field trials now, and it's based on a 30% chrome brick that is a mainstay product for copper and gasification and carbon black industries. The project is all about asking, how can we take this existing technology and tweak the product's attributes to better suit incineration? So the result that came out of the lab was a new brick that actually doubled the strength of the previous, you know, baseline brick, lowered the porosity about three and a half percent, and it's offers three times the thermal shock resistance, and along with all that, improved the slag resistance. So, you know, it's performed exceptionally well in field trials. You know, as a result of those attributes, and excited to look for other opportunities like that, because we have a lot of existing technologies that maybe were developed for other industries that we could borrow, adapt, and translate to incineration. You know, solving problems is how HWI brings value. I've mentioned that a lot through these, you know, this interview for me, new products are a great way to do that. And it's, it's fun, fun way to do it in the process.
0: Very cool. Thank you, Chris. I know there's a ton more to what you do, and you've certainly got your hands full keeping the lid on. It's just another one of those cases that really opens your eyes to how much industry there is out there in the world, and what all needs to get done to maintain our day-to-day lives. If you'd like to learn more about incineration processes or any of the products mentioned in the show, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. And before you go, make sure you ding that bell to subscribe and catch every High Temperature Times episode as soon as it comes out. Until next time, thanks for listening.